Well, let's continue on in prayer. Lord, thank you for that truth that we just sang, that even though we're heading into a new year and a new decade, that we can count on you to be our solid rock, to be stable and secure. Thank you for um, giving us your assurance of love and salvation and joy, even when the world around us has so many difficulties and risks and challenges. Uh, Lord, we don't know what will happen in any category of our lives, really, as we look into the future. Um, Our health, our economy, our politics, all, all of that, Lord, anything could change except for you. We can count on you. And uh, today, Lord, as we open up your word, as we think about who you are, specifically as presented to us in the Gospel of John, we're so grateful that we can know you, that we can love you, and we're so grateful that you care about us and that you offer us this opportunity to know you. And uh, so, Lord, today we're here, and um, it's not about what I would say or about what would come out of our mouths in prayer or song, Lord. It's really that we want, uh, we want to hear from you. And so um, in this moment, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we do um, get right into the Gospel of John today, which is where we'll, we'll pick up, right, where, what, right what Hannah read to us a little earlier, chapter 2, and we'll start talking about that. But I wanted to give you a quick update. Um, a lot of you participated in our, in our year-end giving and really the giving throughout all of, of 2019. And about a month ago, I uh, kind of shared with you what our need was coming into the year-end and just wanted to celebrate where we ended up. So we needed $605,000. That's all of our global mission activity. That's our local missions. That's everything it takes to run the church operation. Uh, that's youth ministry, children's ministry, help ministry. I mean, it's all sorts of different things. There's a few designated funds and things that happen that are outside of that number, but the vast majority of what BCBC is as a church community, uh, that's our budget together, and so that's what we were praying for. And here is what actually came in in 2019, $617,000. So we're super excited about that, exceeded our budget goal. So why don't we just uh, collectively thank the Lord for that? So that represented a lot of giving and sacrifice by a lot of people. Really cool. And uh, something we did talk about a few weeks ago was that our, our budget, like what comes in in one year of income helps us plan for the following year. So this gives us an amazing, as we look forward into 2020 and go, okay, thank you, Lord, for what you provided in 2019. And, and now we're excited to plan boldly as we go forward. So uh, thank the Lord for that. And, you know, I, I look at that number. I don't know if you look at that. And I think, like, where did, where did that come from? Uh, because even when, you know, sometimes people will give big gifts if they make a big sale or something happens. And, but even, even if somebody gives, like, $10,000 at one time, how, how does that add up to $600,000? So you know where the majority of that actually comes from? Is people like you and me who decide to just make it a part of our own budget to kind of give back a little bit of what God has given to us. And it's, those, it's like the monthly or weekly giving that people do that amazingly adds up to that much that we get to use together for God's kingdom. And so for those of you who are faithfully giving, thank you for that. Um, it's really neat to see what God can do through all of us when we pool our resources together and say, Lord, like we're here for the Great Commission. We're here to serve and love people. Uh, we could all do that independently as kind of like free agents, but if we do it together, we can accomplish so much more and a little bit more strategically than if we were all free agents. So it's really neat to, to look at that and just thank the Lord 
for it. Okay, so open up in your scripture to John 2, and we're just going to walk through this now, um, starting with this premise. Remember on Christmas Sunday, we said, your story is better than you think. Uh, And the reason we said that was because in John 1, 1 through 18, we learned that that you can join God's family by believing in Jesus, and you become a part of his story. So even if you look at your earthly family and go, I don't, I don't even like the fact that I'm related to those people and I'm not really proud of my family tree and I'm not really liking myself that much either. And you look at your earthly story and you go, I don't think that's a story worth telling. Here's the good news. When you believe in Jesus, you get to become a part of God's family, God's family tree. And now you have an amazing story to tell anyone who will listen. And then last week we, we took it further than into John one. And we saw how Uh, John the Baptist and Andrew and Philip, three different characters, met Jesus, and their job was to introduce other people to Jesus. And we realized that's actually a a pretty good summary of our job while we're still on earth. Obviously, there's more to life than just that. We have to love people and disciple people and serve the poor and a whole bunch of other things. But if you were going to sort of boil everything down to its irreducible minimum and say, what does Jesus want me to do? He wants me to introduce other people to him because he's the one that transforms lives, not us. And so we would say, Lord, I want to tell someone about how I met Jesus and then introduce them, just kind of make the connection and ask if they'd like to meet Jesus as well. All right, so we saw that in John 1 as kind of, remember the gospel of John was written, essentially the whole book is an introduction to Jesus. So this is kind of John's way of introducing all of us, but he's also walking us through kind of getting to know the Messiah. So first, here's the big picture. You can be a part of his story. He came to this world. The word became flesh. Now you can believe in him. You can become a child of God. And then here's how it happened. John the Baptist introduces him and he starts growing this little group of disciples. And that leads us up to chapter two and chapter three, which I think form a really interesting introduction to who the Messiah actually is. Now remember, like we're coming at this with more of the story already in mind. So we already think cross and resurrection and all the teaching that we get about all of that. So the, the people who were living it, like they were discovering all these things for the first time. So those first disciples, you know, they, they weren't sure what they were signing up for. They, they had evidence there that the, this, this is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. We're going to follow him around. And so they're hanging on every word. They're hearing his teaching and they're thinking, yeah, this seems like it connects with some of the prophecies we've heard. But then they start to get to know the Messiah in some ways that maybe they didn't expect. All right. And here's the first one. They found out that this Messiah, Jesus, will show power that you never expected to see. There was a lot of confusion in the first century about what the Messiah would be like. So the the religious scholars would pour over the Old Testament texts, and some of them were convinced that Jesus was going to be sort of a military Messiah or political Messiah, and that was kind of a prevailing notion. And they they, they, they wanted the Messiah to come, but at the same time, for them, it was more about the power and prestige and getting out from under Roman rule, and, and they were missing the point. They had no idea what was coming. Jesus was about to start showing them power they did not expect to see. And it started in this very unlikely scenario, a very humble place, a small village named Cana in Galilee at a wedding. Okay? And we pick up the story there in chapter 2, where famously Jesus turns water into wine. And what's interesting to me about that miracle, it says it's his first miracle, his first public miracle that 
um, that, he, that he ever chose to kind of reveal his glory, reveal that he was more than just a teacher, more than just a rabbi in training. No, there's something divine going on here. Um, it's interesting, this miracle didn't save anyone's life. It was kind of, it was kind of an optional miracle, right? I mean, if they could, he could have just let the wedding party run out of wine and it wouldn't have been a big deal. Um, but Jesus did this as a way of showing he had power that the disciples were, you know, their mouths drop open. Like, wait, wh- what, are we, what are we seeing here? Like, he's, he's got power over created elements. Like, he can just sort of decide something's going to change, and it, and it does. Um, that he was showing his power to his disciples so that they could start to see um, who he was, so that they could start to have faith in the things that he said. All right, now, what's, now in the narrative of John... Remember, we're reading one gospel out of four. There's three other uh, biographers of Jesus, if you will, that also recorded their thoughts in the Bible. And so not all of them record all of the story. Um, They're kind of all summaries from different perspectives. So if you line them up chronologically, you find out that there were some things that happened after Jesus did his first miracle in Cana, which was in Galilee. Then he started to go to other towns and villages around that area. Oh, and by the way, here's a really interesting thing in chapter 2. Verse 5, you know, Mary in the Bible only ever told people what to do one time. There's a lot about Mary in the Bible, her humility and her, you know, faith in God and the fact that she was, she listened to the angel and she was there watching Jesus die on the cross. There's a lot of story about Mary. There's only one command that she ever gave and that's chapter 2, verse 5. What's that? Do whatever he tells you. He was talking to, she was talking to those servants, but that's kind, of a, that's kind of an instructive thing that even they're his, his physical mother, who if anyone would, would be able to sort of doubt, okay, I know that's not the Messiah because I gave birth to that boy and he is not the No, no, she knew the truth, all right? She knew what the angel said. She was, she was the virgin that gave birth. So of course she knew this is all a miracle. And so do whatever he tells you. All right, but then what happened, and we'll, we'll go over to Matthew for this that this is kind of parallel on the timeline, but John doesn't record this part. Right after the wedding, Jesus starts to go around and introduce himself to the towns and villages of Galilee. So remember, this is the first time that anybody has seen Jesus do miracles. First the water into wine, and then Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. He healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and soon people began bringing to him all who were sick. Whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, all over Judea, and from east of the Jordan River. So the whole area that we would look at and say, that's Israel. Like, every news was spreading like wildfire. Hey, he might be the Messiah. He's some sort of faith healer. Like, something's going on. Jesus, when Jesus comes to your town, like get your sick relatives and kids to him because they can get healed with Jesus. Miracles are happening all over the place. So everybody's hearing this amazing news that whoever he is, somebody is, is coming who's got all this power and, and, you know, there's rumors. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's one of the prophets risen from dead. And, and over the course of the gospel narrative, Jesus starts to dispel these rumors and it starts to become more and more obvious that of all the options they had to pick from, the only one that makes sense is Jesus actually is the Messiah. All right, now, when he goes to Jerusalem, which is the next step on the journey, the people had heard about Jesus, the miracle worker. 
They were excited when he came to town. And so you might even imagine that the Jewish sort of leader rulers of Israel at the time, the people that hung out at the temple and kind of provided the religious pastoral leadership over the people, you might imagine that they were pretty excited to meet Jesus. He's going to come out of the countryside and he's going to come into the big city and they're going to, they're going to meet the Messiah or they're going to meet this healer and they want to make sure that the healer knows their name and they want to make sure the healer's doing what they want him to do. And I mean, they're, they're, all, they're kind of starting to do a political calculation of this whole thing and everybody's whipped up and excited. It's Passover, which means the city is extra full of people who are coming to bring sacrifices at the temple. And here's what happens. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. It says it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem, and in the temple area, he saw merchants. So rather than seeing people like full of devotion to God, he sees something that wasn't quite right. So before I explain it, I want to show you a movie depiction about what this moment might have been. All right, so why didn't those leaders arrest Jesus right then and there? They would have had temple guards. I think they knew he was right. I think in their hearts they knew what they were seeing in that temple courtyard wasn't supposed to be. Now, there there were practical reasons for what was happening, and it wasn't actually evil in and of itself that there were transactions happening or that uh, somebody needed to buy sheep for sacrifices because at the Passover time there were people streaming in from all different regions and they were coming to the temple to, to walk through what the law required. So they needed doves and sheep and things like that. And so... So it, it made sense. I mean, not everyone was a farmer. And so if you, you kind of knew that when you went to Jerusalem, you could find a sheep to purchase and then go offer as an offering. And so, you know, the merchants were making that happen and it was a business they had. Uh, same thing with the money changers or people coming from different regions. They needed to have their money transacted, a currency conversion into something that they, they could go purchase the sheep or the dove with. Here's what started to go wrong. Instead of this being a way of serving people and kind of providing what they need in the temple, um, first of all, it started encroaching in the temple to where the temple was feeling a lot more like the marketplace than a, than a prayer place. That was problem number one. The other problem was that everybody was getting ripped off. So these merchants weren't there because they loved the people. They were there to earn the next dollar. In fact, it was kind of a great, it was sort of like when you and I go to the airport and you pay like $15 to have a sandwich. And you go, how in the world are they getting away with this? Oh, that's right. I'm stuck here. I have no other option. It's not like I can just say, I'm leaving in protest. I'm going to go to the, you know, the real McDonald's down the road and get a $1 sandwich. You can't do that. You're stuck already, right? So here are these people. They're stuck in Jerusalem. They've already made a multi-day journey to get there. They, they brought what little money they had or whatever to come and, and purchase their dove or their lamb or some sort of offering. And the first thing that happens is they go up to the money changer, they get ripped off there. And then they, then they go to the lamb seller, whatever, they get ripped off there. And, and, and think, instead of people being able to dedicate their devotion to God, instead of this being a serious moment of recognizing like these animals that they were sacrificing represented like the, the need for remission of sins. I mean, this is their fulfillment of the law. Instead, it had become this big racket, okay? Taking advantage of people. So Jesus walks into the temple and surveys this scene and just has had it, right? And when you see the context of like what's happening, I mean, who could blame him? I mean, here, his father's house, the temple where people were supposed to meet with God, had been, had been given over to corruption, and here these leaders were letting it happen. And that's why I think they didn't arrest him. I think because when he was flipping over the money changers' tables 
You know, it's not like they could step forward and say, stop doing that, you're wrong, because everybody would have known he was right in doing that. He was just the person that had courage that nobody else had. He was willing to stand up for God's honor. He was willing to fight hard against injustice when no one else was willing to fight. Then they look at him and they say, why don't you show us a miracle to prove that you can do this? Which is pretty cheap if you think about it. I mean, they'd heard that Jesus was a miracle worker. And so now they're going to use this as sort of a, like, why don't, why don't you show us your, why don't you show us a miracle and then we'll believe in you too. And these people's hearts were really far from God, uh, that they would treat Jesus that, that, that way. And, and long before Jesus got there, the, their hearts were far from God, that they would treat all these other people that way, that they would let this happen in God's house. So what we find out is the Messiah is a miracle worker, but he's also not a pushover. Like he's willing to fight hard against evil, especially when people are being taken advantage of. All right. And here's one more thing we learn as we keep going through John two and three, we learn that he will tell you the truth, no matter who you are. He really will. He doesn't care what your position is. He doesn't care what's on your business card. He doesn't care how much money's in your bank account. He doesn't care about your pedigree or your family history or something. Uh, he's, going, he's going to tell you the truth, whether you're rich or poor, weak or powerful. So he, he, you know, he walks right into the temple. He tells the leaders what they need to hear. And one of those leaders is named Nicodemus. And it doesn't specifically reference that Nicodemus was at the temple cleansing, but he was certainly nearby. He was there in Jerusalem. He was one of those Jewish leaders, a member of the Sanhedrin. So he had, he had authority. He had riches. He had influence. And if anyone would have been one who would have sort of called for the arrest of Jesus, Nicodemus would have been one of those. But he couldn't do that. So it says he came to Jesus at night. That's chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. And after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. There again, a little evidence. They knew they were wrong. They knew what was happening. I mean, they, they knew Jesus, Jesus just did something that most people would get arrested for. I mean, if you went to Walmart and tried to clear the money changers, what would happen to you? You'd, you'd be sitting in jail tonight, right? So, so, but Nicodemus didn't send Jesus to jail. He, the, the, he said, we know you're here to teach us and we know the evidence of all these miracles. Like we can't just deny that. You must be from God. So give me the story. Like, tell me what this is all about, Jesus. Now, if I was in that situation meeting a rich and powerful guy like Nicodemus, I know what would happen to me. Because it's the same thing that happens to me. There's a few times in my life I've like shaken hands with a rich and powerful person. And you know, you have all these dreams in your mind of like how bold you're going to be in that moment, right? I mean, you're going to, and then all that comes out is like a shaky, like, you know, I'm praying for you, Mr. President, but it's all you can get out because like in the, in that moment, you sort of lose your boldness. Jesus didn't lose his boldness here in, in normal Jewish custom. Like Nicodemus was a revered longtime rabbi. Jesus was sort of an upstart rabbi. Jesus would have sat down respectfully at Nicodemus's feet and wanted to gather as much wisdom from this older man as he could. Jesus didn't do that. He said, Nicodemus, just so you know, if you're not born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, wait, what are you talking about, like, born again? He said, no, literally, like if you're not born, you're, you think life is just flesh and bone. So you've, you, you think life is about the, the law you're keeping and the, 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 you know, your heart that's beating in your chest. That's just flesh, and all that can do is give birth to other flesh. But if you want the spirit... 
Something else has to happen to you entirely. Something is totally out of your control. You have to be born again, born of the spirit instead of just born of this world. And Nicodemus is saying, wait, tell me more. I, I, have, I don't even know what you're talking about. And Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher and you don't understand what I'm trying to tell you. And then Jesus walks through what God's love is all about and why he came. And so in this introduction to the Messiah, here Jesus himself, this is kind of like him shaking your hand and introducing himself. John 3.16, what did Jesus say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Point back at him. He, He came so that anyone, everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He says, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. So you think Nicodemus here, he just came through this temple experience going like, you know, man, I, I know we're, we're wrong. Is this like God's judgment coming upon us? And Jesus says, hold on, I'm not, that's not what I'm here for right now. We learn later in the Bible, there will be a time when Jesus comes and that is the idea. But in this time, that's not, that's not what he's there for. He's actually there for salvation, not for judgment. So he walks this through so patiently with Nicodemus. Then, in the next component of the narrative here, we we kind of go back to John the Baptist. You remember what John's job was? His only job was to prepare the way. Like clear out all this, get, get everybody's heart ready to hear from the Messiah. So even though Jesus started his work, and even though in John 1, you know, John pointed at Jesus and said, there's the Lamb of God. We talked about that last week. Um, John kept going. I mean, no one told him to stop preaching and calling people to repentance. So John kept baptizing people and he kept preaching the, the gospel. And, but now he knew who the Messiah was so he could just direct people right over to Jesus. John still had some followers, some disciples who were helping him out. And just kind of in you know, classic human fashion, people, even when they're really close to the truth, it's still pretty easy for us to miss the point, right? So some of John's disciples started to miss the point. And, and you kind of pick that up at the end of chapter 3, where John's disciples start complaining, like they're sort of going, wait, everybody's going to Jesus instead of to us. Like, what about our thing we've got going here, John? You can just imagine John just kind of shaking his head and go, guys, I'm, I'm the best man at this wedding. I'm not the bridegroom. This, this whole thing isn't even about me at all. And then he gives us this quote from John 3. John the Baptist said, he must, you know, Jesus must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. John's job of introducing people to Jesus was, that was it. He was, he was handing off. His, his role wasn't to grow a big John the Baptist church. His job, was to, his job instead was to just introduce people to Jesus and move those disciples over to Jesus so that they could follow him. And then John leaves us with a really compelling verse. You could almost look at it this way. You know, Jesus gives us John 3.16 as kind of this ultimate introduction. And then John, sort of at the conclusion of his introduction, he gives us John 3.36. Look at what that scripture says. It says, anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. And so there you have this offer. And John the Baptist is saying, this is the reason I'm here. Uh, You don't bother following me. You need to follow the Son. You need to follow the Messiah. Believe in Him. Get the gift of eternal life. Walk with Him. That's what your life is for. If you don't, it's it's not a matter of sort of like you started neutral and then in life somewhere you pick either I'm going to be good or I'm going to be bad. You you start 
already bad. You start already under judgment because you're part of this dark world where people follow their passion and passions into sin and they, they live for themselves and they're full of pride. And you, you, we're all caught up in that. And so we'd say we're already under the system of death and destruction that was brought by sin. We're already all children of Adam and Eve. That's what happens if you don't take God's route of salvation. But here, if you believe in the Son, if you'll look to the Messiah, he will deliver you too. You can be saved from all of what this world has handed down to you. And you can become a part of God's family and you can have eternal life. And so here this offer is John the Baptist. It's kind of, you know, this is, this is the, the final piece that we hear from him. This is what you need to do now with Jesus the Messiah, whom, whom I'm introducing you to. And so we kind of come to all of this text, both of these chapters, and we say, this Messiah that we're being introduced to by John the writer, remember, which is different than John the Baptist. The writer of the whole book isn't John the Baptist, a different John we'll learn about later. Um, he's, he's doing this so that we'll understand who Jesus was so that we can believe in him as well. And so he gives us this introduction. He tells us what Jesus is all about. He kind of shows us different aspects of Jesus. I mean, he's a miracle worker. He's got incredible power. Uh, he can do anything he wants to do. He's also passionate for righteousness. He has no fear of earthly, you know, whether what people think of him or what the rich and powerful are doing. Uh, Jesus here is charting a whole new course. And there's just this implicit invitation to follow him. Do you want to go the way Jesus is going? Or do you want to keep tracking along with the rest of this world? So here's two questions you can ask this new year. As you process these two chapters and as you think about what 2020 and beyond looks like in your life. All right. First question, how can I get to know Jesus better? You're in the right place for that because we're walking through Gospel of John up until Easter and we want to get to know Jesus better and all the aspects of who he is and what his character is and what his teaching is. So there's a lot more to come in this series that'll help us with that. But don't just rely on church alone to be the only input you get. You could ask yourself and ask the Lord, like, how, how can I get to know you better? Um, and maybe for some of us, it's the first time of saying that. Lord, I want to know you. I don't, I don't want to just go off on my own and trust in myself. I want to trust in you. And then another question we can ask is, how can I introduce more people to Jesus? Um, that th This will come up again and again in the Gospel of John because it's always about testifying to the truth. Here's, here's what Jesus did for me. And now, here, do you want to follow him too? Even next week when we get into John 4, that's the narrative. That's the story over and over again. Testify and then introduce. Um, your story has power uh, when you tell it because it's the story of Jesus at work in you. And so you say, who can I tell that story to this week? How can I keep introducing more people to the transformative power of Jesus? All right, so why don't we pray and ask for God's help as we answer both of these questions uh, here in the days ahead. Lord, we're so, so thankful that you've revealed who you are to us in the Bible. Thankful that we can open it and we can see uh, a picture here of you as a human being and what, how you respond to things, how you're so patient with people, uh, how you stand up for people who are being mistreated, how you love people wherever they're at, uh, how you're, you're willing to show your, your power. Uh, Lord, all these things we're, we're thankful for. We don't want to take those for granted, Lord, and we don't want to just leave those in the history books here. We, we, we want to experience this personally, and we want to know you because we realize that's what we were created to do. So, Lord, as we fulfill our purpose in knowing and loving you, help us also then to accomplish our mission 
introducing, introducing others to you. Thank you for this Gospel of John that we can study together. Lord, more than just the study of it, thank you so much for the truth of it. Lord, for someone in the room today who's discouraged or who's distant or depressed or far from you, I pray that you would reach down out of heaven into their heart and you would show them your love. Lord, because we realize part of this introduction to the Messiah is information, it's from your word, but part of it is spiritual, like you told Nicodemus. Part of it we can't control, but we trust in you to provide. So Lord, for any here who need to be born again, I pray that you would give them that amazing grace. And for those of us who have trusted in you and who are walking with you right now, Lord, fill us with your power. Help us to sense your presence so that we can be a bright light, a joyful light to the people around us. We look forward to doing that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, God bless you. See you next week.